Hello, and welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Disclaimer, all of the opinions presented in this podcast are our own and do not reflect the opinions of any branch of the U.S. military or the Department of Defense. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Tori Plowden with us. Dr. Plowden is double certified in obstetrics and gynecology and reproductive endocrinology and infertility, also known as REI. She attended the George Washington University where she completed her doctor of medicine degree and obtained a master of public health. Dr. Plowden completed her OBGYN residency at Tripler Army Medical Center and her REI fellowship at the National Institute of Health. She is currently chief of the Department of Gynecologic Surgery and Obstetrics at Womack Army Medical Center in North Carolina. Dr. Plowden, thank you so much for being with me today. Um, So let's go ahead and get into our first question. Would you mind just telling us a bit about your path to the Army and why you chose to become a physician in general? Yeah, so I actually have wanted to be a physician since I was a kid. It's really the only job that I ever remember wanting to do consistently. I think a lot of that had to do with my mom being a nurse and she was the person in our family who, if anyone had any issue, they kind of like went to her. And I was able to see her take care of a lot of people in our family. And that I think sparked an interest. I went to Howard University for um, my undergraduate degree and I was fortunate to have a full scholarship there. So that was great. For medical school, though, I (laughs) chose a very expensive medical school, and ultimately, I decided to accept an HPSP scholarship, and that is what brought me to military medicine uh, in the first place. Okay, so then what drew you to the specialty of obstetrics and gynecology? You know, when I went to medical school, I initially wanted to be a pediatrician and I felt like I really love children and I thought that taking care of kids would be a really cool job. And then when I did my rotations, I realized that it was not, it was not for me. I felt that a lot of the outpatient interactions were not as exciting. And I felt that a lot of the inpatient interactions were kind of sad. So I felt like I was just not really in my element. When I did my OBGYN rotation, I was pleasantly surprised to find that I really liked surgery. So I actually did my surgical rotation before I did OB and I did like surgery a lot, but I didn't feel like I wanted to be in the OR all day. And I didn't feel like surgery was the only thing that I wanted to do. So I I didn't really think seriously about general surgery as a specialty, but when I rotated on OB and got into the operating room and did those sorts of procedures. And then in addition, had interactions with pregnant women during their pregnancies in the outpatient setting. And also the gynecology clinic was very interesting. Lots of, you know, pathology, also talking to people during well woman exams to kind of guide them through, you know, various issues that they were having was very satisfying to me. And so I felt like OB was 
almost like just the perfect specialty because I had all of those things. I could do procedures, I could do clinic. And I also felt like it was nice to be able to do some different things every day. You're on labor and delivery one day, you're in the OR one day, you're in clinic another day. And I felt like that was very exciting to be able to function well in all of those places. Yeah, yeah, OB-GYN definitely seems like it has the best of all of the worlds. Um, And then there's so many different fellowships you can go into in addition to that. So you are in the field of reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Would you mind just telling us more about that field for people who are um, unfamiliar? Yeah, I think that REI is this, you know, hidden world that a lot of medical students don't get. And even a lot of residents in, in a lot of residency programs, residents don't get that much exposure to REI. I was talking to a friend of mine and she is at, at a very prestigious Ivy League medical school. And she said that her residents rotate through REI for like four weeks as interns. And that's it. Like they don't really come back again, which I found to be so shocking. So I think that there is a lot of lack of exposure to our specialty. And it really is just so interesting. So first, REI is not just about IVF. Yes, IVF is a large part of what we do, but it's not the only thing that we do. I really enjoy this field, partly because it is a very new field. You know, that can be frustrating sometimes. And sometimes it can be super exciting. What I mean by that is the first child born from IVF only happened in 1978, which is not that long ago. So our specialty, our subspecialty hasn't been around for a very, very long time. But because it's relatively new, there are still a lot of unknown things. There are still a lot of things that we don't fully understand. Um, We have made a lot of strides over these past 42, almost 43 years, but there's still a lot left to learn. And that's also partly what makes the field so exciting. So we have lots of clinical research. There is a lot of bench research that goes on too, but there's lots of clinical research to kind of help us to understand the answers to questions that we don't fully know yet. Yeah. What does your day-to-day responsibilities and practice look like? So that is a little bit of a tricky subject because I'm chief of the department. And so I am not immersed in clinical activity as much as I used to be. I'm only probably about 20% clinical now. But in general, when you're in REI, your days can be divided in a lot of different ways. So sometimes there's operating room. We're fortunate that in the military, we can still do surgeries for our patients that are not just limited to outpatient procedures, a lot of reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists on the outside limit their practice, not just to IVF, but a very large portion of their practice is IVF. And a lot of them don't necessarily have hospital privileges, so they don't necessarily do bigger surgeries like an open myomectomy, but they will do smaller procedures like hysteroscopy, polypectomy, um, sometimes DNCs, those sorts of things. So I'm fortunate that in a military setting, I can still do those procedures. Some of them are my favorite. Open myomectomy is my very favorite procedure. I love it. Uh, It's just just so satisfying. (laughs) But anyway, so sometimes we're in surgery. Uh, Sometimes we do lots and lots of ultrasounds in REI, a lot of ultrasounds, largely because we are 
often monitoring the growth of the follicles on a patient's ovaries so that we can make decisions related to when to um, induce ovulation, when to perform inseminations, when it's time to take them, if we're doing IVF, when it's time to take them for egg retrieval. So we do a lot, a lot, a lot of ultrasounds in our field. So lots of ultrasounds in clinic. Procedures in clinic often include saline sonograms. Inseminations are a main thing that we do in our clinic as well. And then, of course, there's IVF. IVF is really exciting and it's interesting. It's also very costly for patients, financially and emotionally. So our patients have a lot of both financial and emotional investment by the time they're going through IVF. And so, you know, it's really a privilege to care for those patients. And it really is humbling that they put so much trust into us. Yeah, definitely. I know that's such a vulnerable time in so many people's lives. Um, it really is. So as an REI subspecialist, what are some of the things that you're passionate about teaching and think that all medical providers should know? Yeah, so that is a really interesting question because there are several things that pop up into my head like right away. <laughs> so first, uh, health disparities. I am passionate about the elimination of health disparities. And it so happens that this week is Black Maternal Health. Black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than any other group in this country. And it is alarming. And we have discovered that this disparity persists even despite socioeconomic status. So a lot of times socioeconomic status is a proxy for access to care, for um, access to, to healthy food and nutrition and those sorts of things. But even in the setting of high socioeconomic status, Black women are still more likely to die. And a lot of that has to do with racism. It has to do with implicit bias. I have found that when I hear some, some stories related to this, uh, even among Black women physicians, the common theme is that people did not listen to what they were saying, that their complaints were not taken seriously, that they were dismissed. And later, the person became very sick. And in, some, and in one particular instance that I know of, the patient ended up passing away. And if she had had appropriate intervention in a timely fashion, I think it would have been much less likely that that would have happened. So I think that we are in a very special time in medicine right now because these are conversations that we can actually have uh, and that people are open to hearing. And I don't think that that has always been the case. The last summer though, you know, really kind of brought a lot of this to a head. Mm -hmm. And finally, mainstream organizations, uh, medical societies started to say what many of us have been saying for a number of years, and that is that racism is a public health crisis. And we have to deal with that. And we have to face that as, a, as an entity, medicine in general, and then also specifically OBGYN, because there is a lot of, uh, OBGYN has a lot of racist roots, if you will. And so I think it's important to have those conversations. And we've been having these really wonderful conversations with the residents surrounding this. You know, we did a book club and read this book called Medical Bondage, which really was just super enlightening and sad, but enlightening. And you can't fix problems that you can't talk about. Another thing that I am passionate about is 
you know, fertility awareness. So next week happens to be National Infertility Awareness Week. And right now I am working with AMWA, uh, the American Medical Women's Association, to put together a national summit about specifically infertility in women physicians. So infertility is very common. It's about one in eight couples experience infertility in America. And with statistics like that, it is very likely that each of you who is listening to this podcast, you likely know someone who has experienced infertility, even if that person hasn't shared it with you, because sometimes people can be very private and sometimes people feel there is a stigma sometimes associated with being infertile. And sometimes patients don't necessarily want to share that, or people don't want to share that with their friends and family. But it's very likely that you know someone who has experienced infertility. And it's even possible that some people listening to this podcast may have experienced infertility themselves. But among female physicians, it seems that the incidence of infertility is uh, higher. So about one in four, which would be double the national average. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we spend a substantial amount of our primary reproductive years in training. Medical training is brutal. You know, medical school is no laughing matter. And then residency, <laughs> residency certainly isn't um, a laughing matter either. And then of course you may have fellowship. Sometimes people don't want to become pregnant in the early part of their career. But I will say, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is no perfect time to have a child. There just, there just isn't. And if you wait and wait and wait for the perfect time, you may find yourself in my clinic needing help to become pregnant. So I don't think that our medical schools do a really good job at all discussing, you know, fertility, not even infertility, but just fertility, normal human fertility, I think is something that is neglected in medical school. And sometimes I've been surprised by some doctors and other specialties, and even sometimes in OBGYN, who don't really have a great grasp on the things that they should do to attempt to become pregnant. And they don't always have a good grasp of some basic facts, such as age-related fertility decline. It's real. Even if you're healthy, your supply of good oocytes decreases over time. That's just a fact of life. It's just the truth. And sometimes people don't really understand that. Sometimes highly educated physicians don't really, really have a good grasp of that. And so I think these are things that we need to talk about. I also think that we need to change the culture of medicine. It should not be taboo for a person to have a child when that person feels ready. Whatever However, that person defines ready. A person may feel ready in medical school. A person may feel ready in residency. You know, everyone doesn't want to wait until they're in their late 30s or early 40s to become pregnant. And people should be able to make those decisions without it negatively impacting their career. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I can speak from personal experience. That's something from the start of medical school that has weighed in the back of my mind as a female in training. And I know a lot of other female medical students that have the same concerns. I do want to take us back to, first of all, thank you so much for bringing up the, the concept of these health disparities that we're seeing and in, in racism in medicine. That's such a huge, heavy, important concept and topic 
And as medical students who aren't necessarily 100% immersed in medicine, a lot of first and second years are focusing on their studies, but these issues are still so important to so many people. How can we as medical students start to acknowledge and try to change those things happening in medicine and in the world? So, you know, I think it, I think as an individual person, sometimes it can feel very, very overwhelming. And I I have had a lot of people say to me over this past year, like, I'm just, I'm just a blank. I'm just an intern. I'm just a resident. I'm just a regular old doctor. I'm just a whatever. And so you really feel like as an individual, like there's not that much that you can do. And I don't think that that is the case. It is true that it is much bigger than just an individual level, but, you know, we also have to start somewhere and we also have to, you know, exert influence or use our voices to influence people around us. And we all have that capability to do that. So as medical students who are like in the first years and you don't have a lot of clinical experiences. You know, I think that having these discussions with peers is good. It would be nice if there was some sort of formalized, I want to say curriculum, although that's not exactly the word that I want to use, um, in medical schools that was kind of a standard across all medical schools. Certainly different medical schools may be discussing this and some may not be discussing this. It would be nice if there was something that was maybe a little bit more structured just to even get those conversations going. I think that medical students have a bigger voice than they realize, particularly in the age of social media, right? There's a medical student who I I follow on Instagram. (laughs) I mean, on Twitter, I follow her on Twitter and she is, I, I will, I will find her name for you. I think it's Lash Nolan, but I believe that she's at Harvard, if I'm not mistaken. And she recently published something. She was talking about medical education and the lack of resources that demonstrate skin pathology on the skin of people of color. So all the pictures in like the pathology books, the dermatology books are all white skin and white skin is not universal. And people who have a darker pigmented skin also can have <laughs> uh, dermatologic conditions. Yeah. And that's just not shown, you know, and that was one of the things that she was kind of saying. So she wrote this, this article about it was really interesting. And it's a call to act. And that's just one example of, of using your voice. And, and I, I, if I'm not mistaken, her article was, it was published like in JAMA or either that or New England Journal of Medicine, and she is a medical student. So, you know, I think that people do have a lot more power than they might recognize. You can, if if your schools are not offering these sorts of discussions or topics, if if disparity is not really being covered in the preclinical years, then, you know, let your deans know that you want to talk about this, that this is something that you must, must have exposure to as early in your medical career as possible, you know, you have a right to ask for that. And medical schools often, you know, often are receptive to, to the wants um, and the needs of their medical students. So on the clinical side, you know, and sometimes it can be hard, there is hierarchy in medicine, there's 
also hierarchy in the military. And sometimes it can be frightening or intimidating to speak up when you see something that's not right or something that's not okay. You should have trusted people that you feel like you can go to. But as we talk about um, our organizations becoming high reliability organizations, that concept is also rooted in the idea of patient safety and how everyone on the team, everyone on the team has a voice and everyone on the team should be able to call attention to an unsafe situation. And racism is an unsafe situation. So whether that means that you are seeing some interaction between a patient and a colleague or between a patient and a nurse or even between colleagues uh, or someone has made an uncomfortable joke in front of your Black colleague and it's not funny, you can say that. You should not feel intimidated to speak up and use your voice. And in a high reliability organization, you know, it's all of our responsibility to speak up whenever there are any patient safety issues. I also think that educating yourself is really important. So in the discourse right now, there's, the, there's this concept of, oh, the answer to everything is implicit bias training. And in, in the literature, it's like, listen, you can't just do implicit bias training and say, okay, great, now we are going to eliminate racism. Like, that's not exactly how that works. On the other hand, I think it is important for all of us to acknowledge that we all have biases. We all have biases. And we have to stop and think about that. You don't even have to acknowledge it to everyone in the world, but you do have to acknowledge it yourself. And you have to sit with that knowledge and you have to think about that knowledge. I mean, you have to think about that and think about what you can do to change that because we can all change and grow. Um, There are a lot of books out there, podcasts that talk about all of these concepts and, you know, medicine is lifelong learning. This is part of that. This is part of lifelong learning. You have to learn how to interact appropriately with patients of various backgrounds because you are going to care for those patients. And if you are not asking them the right questions, if you are not treating them appropriately you're not going to gain their trust and you're not going to be able to help them in the way that you desire. And I think that that is, and that it's important to examine our biases and learn how to overcome those biases. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's so important to realize not only as medical students and future physicians, but also as current military officers, like we lead by. Absolutely. And people look up to us as officers. So yes, thank you. What has been your favorite aspect of practicing as a military OBGYN? I think that being a military OBGYN gives me the luxury of time. Now, I'm not saying that I'm not busy. (laughs) And I'm not saying that we're not, you know, fully booked and stressed out and all those kind of things. Right. But my civilian colleagues, so I don't have to worry about paying the bills at the hospital, okay? I don't have to worry about the overhead for the secretaries and the nurses. I don't have to worry about that. I I do have an opportunity to focus on patients and do the right things for patients. 
I have a lot of friends who are um, in the civilian world and many of them, just the way that their practices run, they have to see, you know, they may be double and triple booked. So they'll have three eight o'clock patients and three eight thirty patients and three nine o'clock patients. And I don't have to do that. So even when I'm fully booked, even when, you know, I do feel stressed, I keep in mind that I still have the luxury of time. Now, residents don't always feel that way, right? That's different. This is more like as an attending. Sometimes when I have patients that have a huge amount of questions and they just have so many questions and they really need um, a little bit of handholding and if the resident saw the patient and the resident is booked with the next patient, I can go in and sit with that patient for 40 minutes if I need to and explain everything to her. And sometimes my patient population can be um, a a patient population that can be highly anxious. And sometimes they need that. And I, at least according to what my, uh, what my colleagues on the outside say, that is not like a thing for them. I do feel like I have more time. The military has also given me an opportunity to do a lot of different things. Uh, What I mean by that is that we have uh, leadership responsibilities and opportunities much sooner than a lot of our uh, civilian colleagues do. And sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming, but the opportunity to lead is is a privilege. I I think that uh, for a lot of physicians, sometimes this is really hard to reconcile because we want to be at the bedside and we want to be involved in clinical care. And that's obviously very important. But when policies are being made and when decisions are being made, physician voices must be at the table. Mm -hmm. Because if they are not, then often, (laughs) often the decisions that may be made aren't practical, don't work. And the people who know about that are the physicians, you know what I mean? So we have to be at the table, even though sometimes you don't want to be in meetings. And I like, I get that having that opportunity to lead and make decisions that can um, impact not only your patients in a positive way, but also your colleagues in a positive way, you know, getting them the resources that they need so that they can be successful at their job. All of that is very important. And if a doctor is not advocating for that, then it's not going to happen. And so I think that's important to realize. At Fort Bragg, I'm the department chief and, you know, I have been out of Let's see, I finished residency in 2009. And so then I am 11 years out. Oh, almost 12. And a person at my stage of career would not be running a department at a medical center on the outside typically. And it's a fairly, our department is fairly substantial. We have 22 physicians, 11 midwives, uh, staff physicians, 11 midwives and 12 residents and three nurse practitioners. We have about 40 nurses in our, in our clinic area. So it's a lot, it's a lot of responsibility, but I feel like the military has, you know, prepared me for that. And so that is also something that I have enjoyed, even though I didn't necessarily think that I would, I think as when I was a medical student and even as a resident, the idea of having to do administrative tasks I found that idea not appealing uh, because I just wanted to be at the clinic. I just wanted to be like at the bedside. But as I grew in my craft and became more comfortable with, with caring for patients, I also realized that those physician voices, 
you know, are needed. And so it's important to be at the table. Okay. What challenges have you faced being an officer and a physician? And how did you face those? So sometimes it can be a little bit tricky. I feel like, so I'm I'm speaking specifically as an army person, and this is how I felt as an army person. Sometimes people in other, other jobs don't necessarily understand physicians. Sometimes doctors will have this, like a reputation of being difficult, even when they're not really being difficult or like, oh, well, you know, they're a doctor. So they think that they're not like the regular army. And I don't think that that is really fair (laughs) or an accurate assessment. What I have done in, in situations is I have spoken up. So I can think of an example in which they wanted us to go to the range and it's fine. I'm I'm happy to go to the range. If that's what you want me to do and you say, that's what I got to do. I can follow directions. That's easy. But what you can't tell me is on Wednesday that you want me to go to the range on Friday because my patients are scheduled 60 days in advance. Mm -hmm. Right? So what I said to, what I said to the person who was telling me this was, help me help you. Okay. Give me the schedule. And if you can give me the schedule, like for January, I'll be happy to block my schedule so that I can do these military tasks that I must do. Easy. So I don't like how in in some settings, it's almost as if doctors have this reputation of being divas when I really don't think that that is, (laughs) I really don't think that that is accurate. And I don't think that that's the attitude of most of my physician colleagues. Sometimes the military sends you to places that you don't necessarily want to be, and that can be hard. You know, that moving and having to be at a different, a different base sometimes can be challenging, particularly if you weren't, if that's not a place that you wanted to go. But, you know, we deal with it. And I think that for the most part, it, for the most part, it often all works out for good. I did not, when I had to move to Bragg, I did not want to move to Bragg. And that was partly because I anticipated moving the following year. So I felt a little bit blindsided, but it ended up being a fantastic assignment and a fantastic opportunity for me, both as a person and a physician and a leader. And taking over as department chief was a big deal. And it has led to a lot of a lot of professional development. And I have been happy about this experience overall. Now, my husband and I are geographically separated and that obviously has been challenging, but you know, my husband is incredibly supportive. We have very good communication and we were able to make it work. You know, the kids are thriving, we're doing well. Um, so although it's not necessarily something that I, I would have chosen, it still, has worked out well, and I don't have any regrets about it. Before you were department chief at Bragg, what other places were you stationed and what other roles did you hold? So I did residency at Tripler, which was a fantastic experience. I really, I really loved the people that I worked with, and I really loved Hawaii. Hawaii is just a fun place to be, Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly at that time in my life. My husband and I married uh, my senior year in residency, and I got pregnant. And so when I left Tripler, I was pregnant. 
and I went to Fort Polk. Fort Polk is a small army base in Leesville, Louisiana. And interestingly, I am from Louisiana originally, and I didn't want to go to Fort Polk. I was mad. <laughs> they sent me to Fort Polk. I was really hot. But again, I will tell you, it worked out beautifully because I was about two and a half hours away from my home. The home that I grew up in, my grandparents, my brothers, all my cousins, my nieces and nephews, like everybody was about two and a half hours away. My husband is also from, um, we're from the same town. And so his, his family was also nearby. And that was really a fantastic experience because I had been away from home for so long. I left home at 17 when I started undergrad and I had been away for many years. So it was really wonderful to kind of be immersed in that family. I, have, I had a couple of kids there at Fort Polk. Um, a year after I finished residency, I took over as chief at Fort Polk. Now, obviously I'm a much, much smaller institution. We had three, sometimes four physicians and we had a nurse practitioner. And it was really a growing experience because I, I didn't, I mean, residency didn't prepare me for any of that, really. Not for running a department and the challenges that come with that. But I had an incredibly supportive team, um, the DCCS, which is uh, like equivalent to the CMO, um, was very, very helpful and, you know, answered all of my questions. And it was a, it was a good experience. So I was at Fort Polk for four years. And, and during that time, I decided that I wanted to go back to fellowship. And so then in 2013, I moved uh, to NIH and became a fellow there. I really love fellowship. It was awesome. I had another baby. It was really fun to work in REI. And then as a fellow, I actually, so part of our fellowship is you have to do 18 months of research. And I never really did research much before that. So I was real skeptical and I was kind of like, you know, but I have to do it. It's check the box. And I actually found that I like research a lot more than I thought I did. Now it's clinical research that I did, clinical epidemiology research, but not, not bench research, but I like to write. And I did not know that because I had never really had much of an opportunity to do research. And so I discovered that I had a talent for it, that I had an interest in it. And that was fun. Um, And I still, I still publish quite, quite frequently. I then graduated and stayed at Walter Reed as a staff physician and I took over as the, the chief of the REI clinic. And, you know, REI, it, it's its own little world because the subspecialty, Walter Reed is an interesting place because all the subspecialties are represented. And so we kind of run, um, our division kind of runs a little bit, not separately from the department, but different than the main department. And I work with people who are fantastic and funny and smart and supportive. Um, I actually went through, I had a personal loss while I was in fellowship and the people that I worked with really helped me to, they, they were very, they were incredibly supportive. And so that is, it's a good feeling to know that the people that you work with have your back, if that makes sense. And so that was a good experience. Uh, Then I came here to, oh, I will also say that at Reed, of course, I was involved in teaching residents and fellows, and I just love that. I think it is so much fun. It's actually very nice because the way that you teach medical students is different than the way that you teach residents, and that's also different than the way that you teach fellows. The fellows, you can get down to like, oh, nitty gritty kind of stuff, and it's it's a lot of fun. (laughs) So I did like how 
diverse the teaching was. Uh, and that was also a really great experience. And then I went, when I came here to, to Womack, I came as the REI division director. And then I, about six months later, I took over as department chief. And we don't have fellows here, but we do have residents. And our, our residency program is the newest OBGYN program in the Army. It started back in 2012. And so we only graduated the first class of residents in 2016. And so given that it's still a relatively new program, there has been a lot of, a lot of like room for growth and changing the curriculum and teaching. And that has actually been really nice. Our residents are fantastic. They work hard and they are very interested. And that, that means a lot. They take really good care of patients. And so, you know, people kind of sometimes undervalue the residents, Mm -hmm. the residents rock and being able to, to teach, you know, the next generation of OBGYNs in the military is really a privilege. These are the people that are going to be caring for me when I'm a retiree. These are the people who will care for my daughter if she needs any sort of, you know, GYN care. And being able to teach the residents and play a role in their education is, it, it is a privilege. And it is something that means a lot to me. So a variety of experiences, a, a small base, large medical centers, several different states, uh, and each place has been interesting and unique. And definitely I have learned a lot at each of those places. Yeah. Based off of some of the other podcasts that we've done, I see some very common themes in that you get an assignment, even if that assignment, the last thing that you wanted, so many physicians have said what a great experience it ended up being, and they're so happy they ended up there. And the leadership skills that they gained and the support that they had from team members and, and other physicians was great. So, yeah. What advice do you have for students when choosing their specialty? I know there's a lot of, a lot of third year students even now that are kind of still on the fence. Yeah. yeah, that is a great question. It's hard. There are some people who come in and know what they want to do and they just hit the ground running and that's just what they're going to do. But I think, I think probably the majority of us change our minds at some point during medical school. And that's why doing the rotations is really great. So be open to specialties that you may or may not have initially considered. That's the first thing that I would say. The second thing that I would say is talk to people talk a lot to a lot of people, just so that you can understand what their experiences were. If people had regrets, um, sometimes just hearing stories, why they went into that specialty, what about the specialty drew them, what they like, what they don't like. No matter what specialty you do, there will be things that you love and there will be things that you don't like as much. Don't please, particularly if you are a woman, particularly if you're a woman, or a minority student, please do not be talked out of a specialty just because you are a woman or a minority student. Please do not be talked out of a specialty because of, quote, lifestyle. When I decided that I wanted to do OBGYN, a lot of people were like, are you crazy? (laughs) Are you, you're going to be up all night. You're never going to go to sleep like ever you're not going to have any kids, you'll never get married, everything, everything. And I was like, but this is what I like. You know, I feel like this is going to be something that brings me joy, that this is going to be something that I'm going to be good at. 
and that this is what I want to do, right? Even if it was a specialty that had a quote, better lifestyle, if I don't like the work that I'm doing, I'm not going to be happy doing that work, right? So I think that now, now that lifestyle should not be a consideration, right? Of course, of course, when you do the rotations, you are kind of living like a person in that specialty. And so it's to give you an idea of what life might be like in that specialty. But I will also say that medicine is more flexible, more flexible than I ever could have imagined. And you can create the kind of practice that you want to have. Now, it might take a while. I'm not saying that you're going to be having the exact practice that you want the second you finish residency. But particularly in the military, there are a lot of opportunities to step into other roles. I'm speaking specifically from Army experiences. You can go operational, meaning that you can do something that is not clinical all the time. You can become a hospital commander. Like there, there's so many different things that you can do over the course of your career that it doesn't have to be the same. You can become a subspecialist. I think in OBGYN, uh, lots of people prefer one over the other. I loved both. And that was part of the reason why I wasn't sure if I wanted to do REI because I wasn't sure if I could quote, give up OB, right? I loved both, but I I did always like GYN just slightly more. You know, some people like OB just slightly more. It doesn't mean that you have to do a fellowship, but if you do enjoy a certain aspect of the practice, you can do a fellowship and do that aspect of the practice. In the military, we do still cover labor and delivery, even if we're a subspecialist, but not that frequently. I was on labor and delivery last week and did, I did two C-sections and I did a version, which is when the baby is breached and you kind of turn the baby uh, so that the mom can deliver vaginally. And it was lots of fun. I hadn't done a version in actually about two months ago when I was on L&D, I did one then too. And they both were successful. I will also say that. So anyway... So we have the opportunity to still use some of our OB skills. On the outside, REI doctors in general are not doing labor and delivery anymore. They're not covering obstetrics anymore. And that's okay. A lot of those physicians in that subspecialty, you know, OB wasn't their favorite thing. And that's okay. But there is a lot of flexibility within your field. You can be an academic physician. You can be later on in your, you can be a person who's more like into policy. Uh, There's some, some doctors that I know that are active duty who work at DHA and work on policy stuff all the time. So there are so many different things that you can do. I would say that don't shy away from a specialty just because it seems hard it's not going to feel as hard if you really enjoy it. If you want to do something that you think is, quote, easy, but you don't actually enjoy the practice of that particular specialty, then I think you're going to end up being miserable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I had no idea that you could kind of do, be a subspecialist and still do the bread and butter of OBGYN and labor and delivery. And I think that's awesome. Yeah. And that, that's a benefit of military medicine because a lot of people on the outside don't, once you become an RE, you kind of like, now sometimes people will occasionally like moonlight 
as an OB at a certain place, but their main job essentially is often with REI, a lot of people focus more on IVF. So they're not in the hospitals, they're not doing those sorts of things. And same like oncology, GYN oncologists focus on cancer patients. And so they're much more surgically involved. But in the military, our GYN oncologists also cover labor and delivery. Sometimes they're not happy about it, <laughs> but they do, they do cover labor and delivery. And so that, that I think is a little bit of a benefit of being in the military. Cause I still do a, a little bit of OB and I enjoy OB. I just slightly prefer GYN. <laughs> so if I was outside of the military and I was an REI subspecialist, I would likely be doing zero OB stuff. Usually, you know, once you, and once your preg- patients conceive and you have confirmed um, an intrauterine pregnancy, we usually send them to their OB doctor at around, you know, eight to 10 weeks. So we only deal with very early pregnancy and then that's it. Okay. Okay. So I wrote this next question with OBGYN in mind. I think it belongs to every single specialty. What do you, especially as like a department chief and someone that's been involved in residency programs, what do you look for? What skills do you look for in a resident and a fourth year student applying to a residency program? I look for emotional intelligence. I think that, so you're, I mean, you're in medical school, you're obviously a smart person. A lot of the art of medicine is about interactions. Uh, interactions with your colleagues, interactions with your patients, getting patients to trust you so that they can tell you very, very intimate details of their lives so that you can, you know, treat their illness or, or help them in whatever uh, specific way that patient needs help. But you have to be able to build rapport. I think that my eye is drawn to students who are enthusiastic, students who really try to understand OBGYN on a deeper level. And what I mean by that is that they ask insightful questions that you can tell that they're reading. Uh, You can tell that they are interested in the specialty. Compassion is important. I think sometimes as residents, people, residency is a very difficult time. It is uh, challenging and you're tired. And I think sometimes people can become a little bit jaded during residency. I think we have to fall back onto that compassion that really brought us into medicine. And I think sometimes as a resident, it's easy to lose sight of that. So when I see medical students who are not compassionate, it's alarming to me because I'm thinking, really, you just, you just are starting. How can you, you know, you, and you're kind of dismissing people. That's not obviously appropriate. I like when during interviews, I like when the medical students ask questions, just like we are interviewing you, you are also interviewing us and you're going to help determine if this place is a good fit for you. And I think being able to ask those questions and kind of being insightful is important during the interview process. You know, people talk a lot about scores And scores are important, but usually, I mean, in a lot of places, the scores are not even given to all of the people that are interviewing. Most of the staff don't see the scores. The program director will, but most of the staff don't see the scores. I would encourage people 
to not feel afraid going into the interview because, oh my God, they're going to ask me about this test and I didn't do quite as well as I wanted to, et cetera. Although those things are important, those are not the only things that are important and certainly in general don't preclude you from being able to match. Reputation is important. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that other you know, students are telling us things about students. That's not what I mean. I mean that your interactions with people and the way that you treat people are important. And there are always people that are watching, you know, not even, not even for residency, just like in life, right? And people will see how you treat the nurses, how you treat uh, other people who have no authority over you is important. Those interactions are important. And it says a lot about, it says a lot about a person. So I think all of those things are, are things that I would look for when I'm interviewing medical students. Okay. Thank you. How can we continue to be strong officers in the military as we advance throughout our careers? So I think the first thing is really actually recognizing that you really do wear two hats. I think that earlier in my career, like in, in, in residency, I just was, you know, I was a doctor. I technically was an officer, but I didn't like, you know, I didn't really, I I don't know. I guess I didn't really identify with that as much. Right. And I think that, you know, maybe a lot of people who are more junior now, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast um, are going to be people who went to uses. And so you guys are a little bit different because you are immersed in officership at an earlier time period. For those of us who are HPSP, we're not. Um, it's just not the same. Um, and so you don't really identify with it as much. I think that as officers and as physicians, a lot of our roles will overlap. So we must be respectful. We must be responsible. We must do our duty. You know what I mean? Like those, those are things that, that are true, whether you're talking about your role as an officer or your role as a physician. I would say that you will have much better experiences if you don't try to isolate yourself or put yourself into a whole different special category. Like, well, I'm a doctor. Yeah, you're a doctor and that's important. Um, but you also have to know how to interact with people. You have to, I would say, make use of your NCOs. It's our non-commissioned officer. These are enlisted individuals that will be either in your department and they are so knowledgeable. They will help you. They will keep you out of trouble. They will get you squared away. And their knowledge is very, very valuable. So be able to, you know, take input and take criticism regardless of where it's coming from. I think that's an important part of embracing your, your officership. Residency, it's hard to stay healthy and fit in residency, but it is a requirement and it is a must. It's also the right thing. Like it's a, it's a good thing for us to do as physicians, but it's hard to, to balance that because you are, there's so many, you're working so many hours. Our officership does force us to perhaps be a little more healthy in residency. That's probably a good thing. So embrace that, you know, work out. And if you're, if your group can do it together, that actually is very nice because one, it is done during the daytime, like during business hours, you will have some 
usually in the residency programs, you'll have some protected time to do group PT and that's good. And then you also can motivate each other and it also builds a spirit of camaraderie. So I will say, just don't take for granted your officership and, you know, professional development is important. So learn how to write OERs. That's what we call our evaluations. Because at some point you're going to be evaluating people and you want to be able to do it in the correct fashion. You would not want someone's promotion potential to be negatively impacted because you didn't write a good OER when you meant to. You know what I mean? So seek those professional development opportunities so that you can learn those very common things that a lot of, so lots of captains, O3 captains are learning, are learning these things. But when you're a resident, you don't get that same exposure because you're learning doctor things, right? So you do have to be diligent to make sure that you get that exposure and that knowledge so that you can do a good job and so that you can be knowledgeable and then also knowledgeable to the officers who are junior to you as you become more senior, because they are going to look to you as a leader and you want to be able to impart good knowledge to physicians who are, are more junior than you. Yeah, absolutely. As officers and physicians, I'm sure you can attest, you never stop being a leader and being looked up to as a leader. This, this is true. This is very true. So I just want to thank you so much for this conversation today, for not only teaching us about OBGYN and REI, but how to develop as medical students and the steps that we can take to actually make a difference in the world and the disparities and everything happening in medicine today. Thank you for showing us by example, your leadership and how we can also become leaders and officers that our comrades look up to throughout our career. So that wraps up our episode with Dr. Plowden today. Uh, Ma'am, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experiences with me and the other future military physicians. Yeah, I really had a really nice time talking with you. I think that this podcast that you guys are doing is very valuable. Certainly, if people out there want to reach out to me, if you have questions about your career, you can certainly feel free to do so. Okay, perfect. We can link Dr. Powden's information in the podcast. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything in particular that you'd like to hear, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.